you got your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 3. That's where we're going to be, Acts chapter 3. But before we get started this morning, I want to share with you next week, I'm actually going to uh, preach a message on why I'm pro-life. And I want to preach on that. I, I was tempted to kind of pull some stuff together for this morning, but I thought, you know, I want to wait and give a little bit of time uh, with the decision that came in on Friday. But I want to explain to you that pro-life means more than anti-abortion. So we have a lot that's still left to do. And I want to explain that. I want to share with you what that means for us as a church, where we have got to step it up now with this decision being made. So I hope you'll be here next week uh, when I talk about that. Well, this morning we're in Acts chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 26. We're going to talk about Peter's second sermon. You know, I remember my first sermon back in 1995. I was a sophomore in college. My youth pastor called me up and said, hey, I want you to come and preach. I had just surrendered to the call as far as being a pastor. And he called me up. He said, it's our college and career day, and I want you to preach. And he gave me about three weeks to prep for it. I took all three weeks. I mean, I had about 100 scriptures I was going to lay it on the line and lay it thick. I preached it to myself probably 30 times. Then I preached it in front of my parents. I mean, I was prepping like I had never prepped for a message before because, again, it was my first message. Now, when I prepped, the shortest it had ever been in my preparation was 50 minutes. The longest was an hour and 20 minutes. Now, some of y'all were sitting there going, I'd have got up and left. But I prepped, and I prepared, and I, I mean, I had it down. I mean, I had my notes. I, had, I was rip-roaring and ready to go. I got in the pulpit, and 25 minutes later, I said, amen. <laughs> I did. I, I look back at it, and I think to myself, oh, my goodness, what did I even preach? I'm not even certain what I even said. I know I've got notes, but I don't have a clue. Now, I can tell you, it was a year later, the pastor gave me another chance to preach. And, uh, and I remember I prepped on that one, and I remember, thankfully, my second sermon was a little bit better than my first sermon. But it does take time as you begin to preach to get used to doing some of those things and sensing God's leadership in your life. Now, you've got to understand, this is Peter's second sermon. Now I'm going to tell you, his first one was a home run. I mean, Peter in Acts chapter 2, he knocked it out of the park, and there was over there was 3,000 souls added to the church that day. The Spirit was there. He was moving. God was speaking through Peter and used him mightily. We come to his second sermon, and I'll be honest with you, after seeing 3,000 saved, you sit back and you wonder, well, what can happen Next, Well, don't ever try to put God in a box and say God can't do it again because he can. And sure enough, when Peter preaches this message, we'll see it in a couple of weeks, there were actually at least 2,000 more added to the church after this message. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's a preacher that can grow a church in two weeks by 5,000 people. All right? But the Spirit was moving. The Spirit was working. And we need to get back to those days where the Spirit is moving in such power and in such fashion. Well, this morning we're going to look at two points to Peter's sermon. 
His sermon was simple. I know most preachers think they have to have three points. Peter had two, so guess what I have today? I have two points. We're going to go through this, and we're going to work through his message. It was about as simple a gospel presentation as Peter could make it. First thing we want to see is the need for Jesus. Look with me in verse 12. He says, so when Peter saw it, talking about the group gathering around, he has just healed the lame man. This lame man, if you remember, we talked about it. He was jumping and leaping and praising God. He had never been able to walk. He had never had use of his legs. But from the moment he was healed, he was leaping through the temple, praising God, and began to draw a crowd. So Peter, when he sees this, in verse 12, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? What a beginning to the message. In other words, here's what Peter said. Don't be focused on us. This is not about us. This is not about me. Your salvation can't come through me. His healing can't come through me. Men are never supposed to point you to themselves. They're supposed to always point you to Jesus. And look at what he says. He says, men of Israel, why do you look and marvel at this? In other words, Peter recognized that it wasn't but just a couple of months ago, Jesus was doing these things. They had seen Jesus perform miracles. They had seen Jesus make lame people walk, blind people see, deaf people hear, and even raise the dead. They had seen these things, and he says, why are you marveling? This has been going on for three years. We are just fulfilling what he's called us to do. Why marvel? And he says, or why look so intently at us? Isn't that amazing? Don't look at us. This didn't happen because we did it. It happened because of the faith of the one we have placed our faith in. He did it. And he says this, as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk. Now he's going to start preaching. You ready? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. I love that title, his servant. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, oh, I'm not really certain or keen that I like that title, but Isaiah really liked it because that's kind of a term that Isaiah used again and again in the scriptures. In fact, in Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1, he says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He'll not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, he will not quench. And he will bring forth justice for truth. Man, I love that. I mean, Peter is, is using and understanding that this is a title of the Messiah. One of the greatest titles that was given to him. And you find it in Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. We see the one that's called the suffering servant. I can't wait to get to this on Wednesday night. But in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at his visage, so was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He later goes on in that passage in chapter 53, and he declares there that he took our sins upon his body, our iniquities upon himself, that we might be freed from our sins. This is the servant that Peter is talking about. He says he glorified his servant, Jesus. Jesus was never afraid to be thought of as a servant. In fact, it was Jesus who said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many, and he came to serve mankind. 
In John 13, he showed the greatest example of this when he took off his outer garment and he put on a cloth and he went over there and he washed his disciples' feet. He took the lowest position. Let me tell you something. He is he has served us. And he served us well when he went to the cross. And he took your sins and my sins and they were placed upon his body. He was willing to serve you and I by taking our sins, taking our punishment, taking our pain, being turned and forsaken by the Father so that your sins and my sins could be forgiven. Oh, let me tell you something. The servant Jesus is beautiful. And he said he took it. He said he glorified his servant Jesus. Don't you love that title, Jesus? Jesus comes in the Old Testament. It would have been Joshua. And it simply means this. The Lord, our salvation. The Lord, our salvation. Jesus is the only means of salvation. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father but by him. He's the only way. He said he, he glorified his servant, Jesus. Listen to this. Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Now he begins to focus on the trial here. He said, you remember when you took Jesus before Pilate? You accused him falsely. You lied about him. You denied him. You denied the things that he did. You denied the miracles. You forgot how he taught. You forgot all the things that he said. You denied and you turned your back on him. You took him to Pilate. Pilate was willing to let him go. And instead of letting him go, you chose somebody else. Because verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He's called him servant. He's called him Jesus. Now he's the Holy One. And the just one. Don't you love that? Our God is holy and just and righteous and without sin. In Psalm 16 and 10, he says, You would not allow your holy one to see corruption. In other words, he's telling you right there, even in the Psalms chapter 16, that the holy servant of God would rise up from the dead. He would not remain. You will not allow your holy one to see corruption. He is without sin. He is perfect. He has never sinned, but he became our sin. You say, why is that important? Because you need to understand that Jesus Christ became the epitome of everything he hates. He took on every sin of the world. And he died for those sins that we might be forgiven. He became sin. That's what the Bible declares. He became sin that you might have the righteousness of Christ in him. He was willing to die so that our sins could be forgiven. The Holy One and the just. But you ask for a murderer. There before you stood Jesus and Barabbas. He asked you, who do you want? You want Jesus who is called the Christ? Or do you want Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the thief, the murderer? Who do you want? And they said, we want Barabbas. We want the insurrectionist. We want the thief. We want the murderer. They didn't want him. They just didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Barabbas. They would have been fine if he would have crucified Barabbas. They just didn't want Jesus to be free. And so in order to make sure that Jesus was crucified, they had to accept Barabbas because that was their only choice. And look at verse 15. This is powerful. And killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. There's a lot of power in this passage right here. The prince of life, that word there, comes from archegos, which simply means the originator or the creator. You killed the creator of life. 
You killed the originator of life. In other words, you put to death the one who brought about all life. You say, well, that was God. Well, it was Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, tell us this, does it not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him. The same was in the beginning with God. Think about these things. Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. He was a part of creation. We know the Holy Spirit was there as well. A lot of people say, well, how how do you get all three? God created, Jesus was a part of creation, and the Holy Spirit was roaming. He was also a part of creation. They're all right there. You took the originator of life and you killed him. Oh, but here's the thing. You can't snuff out the originator of life, can you? They killed him temporarily. He was in the, the ground. At least his body was in a tomb temporarily. He had told the thief on the cross, what? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So he wasn't just left dead. He was in paradise. He was what? He was taking care of business. And when he says this, he says, you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. Don't you, aren't you glad we don't serve a dead God? You know what? You can go to Buddha's tomb and he's still there. You can go to Muhammad's tomb and he's still there. But the one tomb you can't go to and find a body in is the tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, I love it because I tell you, they've tried to deny it for so many years. They say, well, it was the, the, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, if you know where the right one is, point us in that direction. Now, all the disciples stole the body. You mean those weak cowards that hid in an upper room and that were afraid to stand up for him when you took him prisoner? Those guys? Really? The thing is, is when it comes right down to it, they know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He paid for your sins and mine. And the originator of life can extend and give you eternal life, not just physical life. God raised him from the dead, of which we are witnesses. We have seen it firsthand. I love in 1 Corinthians when Paul makes that declaration. He says, let me tell you something. He said, Peter and the disciples and I... And about 500 others have seen him. He said, of most of whom are still alive today. Now, you know why Paul said that? He said, because if you want to corroborate the truth, go talk to all these people. Go check it out and see if it's not true. He said, I want you to understand we are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. It's his name. His name. I love that Jesus' name is mighty. It is powerful to save. It is powerful to heal. Now, some people will look at this and they'll say, do you believe that Jesus heals all diseases? Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, no. My wife and I went through this about six or so, almost seven years ago with her mother. We had just moved to Alabama We hadn't been there very long. Her mother was diagnosed with cancer. And we began to pray for her mother. We prayed for healing. And here, I want you to understand, it's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong. And so we prayed for God to heal her. And she went through chemo. And she did the things the doctors wanted her to do. But it wasn't long. The doctors found out it wasn't working. And so we continued to pray. We continued to pray for a miracle. We wanted to see God heal her. And he did. He just healed her ultimately when he took her home. And can I tell you something? She wouldn't want to be here anyways to see all this mess we're going through. 
She's in a place where there's no sin, there's no problems. She's not experiencing any pain, and she don't ever have to worry about cancer up there. She's healed perfectly. You see, he can heal, and through faith. But guess what? Just because you ask for it doesn't mean that it always happens. But we still, in faith, we can't be double-minded people. A lot of people say, well, that, doesn't that seem to be contradictory? No, I'm going to pray for healing, but if God chooses to do the other, I'm going to praise God because it was his will anyways. It's okay to pray for one thing, and if God answers it in a different way, he's God, he's sovereign, and he can do that. It's his will. I desire his will above all things, and I will trust his will above my will, even though I'll still pray in faith, believing that almighty God can heal him. It's not a contradiction. It's just I'm trusting that God's going to do what God needs to do, and I'm going to pray how I believe I need to pray, and then I'm just going to trust it up to him. He said, this man was made strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. I want to explain why God healed the lame man. Because a lot of times people say, well, why didn't God heal everybody? God healed the lame man to set this sermon up. The whole purpose for the miracles that were happening in the New Testament was to set up a gospel message for the people. Can I tell you, we went and visited... A gentleman from the church this week in the hospital, his name's Alan Esses. I love that man. He is about the, he's the most encouraging man you'll ever find. I really believe that. Just a godly man. And we went there and we, we were praying for healing. And we were praying for him and he had doctors and nurses come in. He made certain that whoever came in there, here's the gospel. He's led about 20 doctors and nurses to the Lord since being in the hospital. And you know what? He says it's all for the glory of God. It's faith in God. It's trusting God. I believe just like the man born blind was born for such a time as this, Alan Esses was born for such a time as this because God's using him greatly there. Here's the thing. We have to have faith, and we believe that God has ultimate healing power, but we also know that the God we serve has a purpose and an intention behind everything that goes on. He said, this man's faith was made well so that what? So that these things could be happening. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. Now you say, well, what do you mean they did it in ignorance? Well, think about what Jesus said when he was on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, he's, he's basically saying, if they really knew who I was, I would not be up here. If they really believed me to be the Christ of the Old Testament, if they really believed me to be the Messiah, I wouldn't be here. But because of their denial of those things, because they won't believe those things, in ignorance they have done this. Now the Bible makes clear in the Old Testament, in the law, it talks about the difference between willful sins and ignorant sins. A willful sin is when you know something's wrong and you do it anyways. An ignorant sin is if you didn't know something was wrong and you did it. You understand the difference. A willful sin is that person that says, I know it's wrong, but I'll just ask God for repentance instead of permission. That's a willful sin. They did it in ignorance. They didn't understand who he was, and therefore they willingly put him on the cross. He said, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. He said, but I need you to understand something. Jesus was on the cross for a reason. 
And it was by God's gracious plan that he was crucified for your sins. It was by God's gracious plan that three days later he rose from the dead. All of this was foretold by the prophets. All of this was done so that you might be saved. Here's where the culmination of his message is coming. You need Jesus. The one that you didn't want, you now need. The one you rejected, you now need. The one you crucified, you now need. Faith evangelism training. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been through it. But they had a little booklet. And on the front of that booklet was Jesus on a cross being crucified. And they had a few modern day people. One with a hammer, one with a nail. And the question you asked when you looked at that picture is, which one are you? Now some of you say, well, I didn't nail him to the cross. Oh, yes, you did. Your sins nailed him to the cross. My sins nailed him to the cross. You realize the nails were not what kept him on the cross. It was your sins and my sins that he was dying for that kept him on the cross. It was his love for you and me so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He would die a sin's ransom. He would pay the ultimate debt so that we might be free. He did all of that. This was all a part of God's plan. And get this. It was before creation was ever started. What a Savior. What a God. What a plan. We see the need for Jesus. Number two, we see the need for repentance. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Like David in Psalm 51, 9, blot out my transgressions. You, you understand? Here, here's the hardest thing that we don't grasp is when we write in pen, you ever notice you can't erase pen? Whiteout was one of the greatest things ever invented, wasn't it? When you make a mistake, instead of having to start all over or make scratches through your paper, you white it out and you write over top of it, except when it crusted out and it flicked off after you wrote on it again, Right? But pens back in biblical times, they could write on papyrus reed, and you know what would happen is they could actually blot it out. If they wrote something incorrectly, they could take a sponge with a little bit of water and dampen it, and it would pull the ink off of the papyrus reed. You say, well, why is that? Because their pens weren't acidic, so they didn't stick to the papyrus. And so they could blot it out. And here's what he's saying. He says he can blot out. Look at this. Be converted that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, he can take away that ugly ledger of your debt how much blotting did he have to do for you you think about all that he must have like a big sponge right he can blot out pages at a time because i'm sure my ledger's full but he can blot out your sins and cleanse you and forgive you thank god but we have to what we have to repent but understand, repent is not just apologize. We, we have lost this concept of repentance in the church. It's not just going to God and going, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's not it. Repentance is not just crying out in confession. It is confessing your sin and then turning from that sin. Now, I understand sometimes we, we fail. We fall back into sin. But the person that falls back into sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon you and your desire is to repent and get right with God as soon as you recognize that. He says, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that, get this, times of refreshing may come. 
I'm going to tell you what, we've had some hot days, haven't we? And boy, when that little quick shower comes in, that's times of refreshing, isn't it? You get that little shower, then you better get inside because the humidity gets real bad after that. But the shower was a blessing. He says that. He says, you be refreshed. The thing is, is when God forgives you of your sin, it is gone. The refreshing part of that is he's not going to bring it back up. Now, that's hard for us men sometimes, isn't it? You say, what do you mean it's hard for you men? Wives, I love you, but y'all don't let anything go, do you? Sometimes, sometimes. But you think about this. I'm just picking with you, ladies. Don't. Oh, man, I'm going to be crucified over that one. Yeah, I know, I know I didn't hear any amens on that one. <laughs> you men were very wise. I'll pay for that one. What I'm trying to say is simply this. For all of us, it's important. Because we all have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Usually the toughest people that we have to forgive is ourselves. I've dealt with this so many times from people even here in the church coming to me saying, I just can't forgive myself. The thing is, is when God forgives you, you don't need to remember it anymore. Because he has forgiven, he's cleansed you, he's blotted it out, and it's covered. You see, our God is such a forgiving God. And verse 20 says, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. In other words, he can cleanse you, guess what? Until he comes back. You see the promise here? He says, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Can you imagine what that's going to be like when he restores all things? Well, here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that those that have gone on before us know what that means. Because they've been restored. They've been cleansed. They don't have to deal with the problems that we have to deal with. They don't have to deal with sin. They don't have to worry about death. They understand what restoration is. We will see it one day. He's coming back, which God has spoken by the mouth of all. Get this, all, not a few, all his holy prophets since the world began. In verse 22, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brethren whom you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. That's in the book of Deuteronomy. Even in the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus was predicted. In the book of Genesis, Jesus was predicted. When he, right there at the very curse in Genesis 3, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Every bit of that is about Jesus. He's all throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament, every single book in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Samuel, he's talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, Samuel was dead at that time, but it was through the prophets that God prophesied 
who would come through the line of David. Samuel knew this in 1 Kings 16. But he goes on in verse 25. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 12. Peter is bringing up passage from the Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament. In Genesis 12, that was the promise that was given to Abraham. That your seed will be a blessing to all those. To all nations. To all people. And he was referring to Jesus Christ. And in verse 26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. And turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus came to bring about forgiveness. To bring about peace and restoration in our lives. But you know what? We have a part that we must do. And that's repent. Repent. Seek the forgiveness of God and turn from our sins. And when we repent, we can understand that our faith in Jesus Christ will then save us. It will change us. And it will transform us. That is the simple message of the gospel right here from Peter. The simple message is you need Jesus and you need repentance. You need to change. You need to turn. You need to place your faith in the one and only who paid for your sins. Peter makes it very clear. You know, in September of 1900, a killer hurricane was bearing down on the island of Galveston, Texas. People knew that this massive hurricane was, was coming through, was going to tear through that island and destroy it, and yet people remained. Thousands of people lived on that island. Thousands. They couldn't see the hurricane, but they were warned about it. They didn't have early indicators, but they knew a storm was coming, and yet they chose to remain on the island. When the devastation of that hurricane came through, six thousand people died. Six thousand. Because they didn't listen to the warnings. They didn't heed the pleas to get out. There was one bridge that led them out. One way that they could get off of that island. One way that they could get to the mainland and spare themselves. And they were told what they could do, but they chose not to. Since that massive hurricane came through, they have now built up a large wall right there on the border in order to help because it tore and devastated that whole town. They built up a large wall kind of as a shrine in a sense to all those lives lost but as a reminder that when something that powerful comes through they better not remain. You see they had a choice. They had a choice to stay and face the devastation or a choice to be saved by crossing that bridge. Can I tell you today you have the same choice. There's a sentence that's coming. There's a judgment that's coming. And one day you'll stand before God. There's one bridge between you and devastation. His name is Jesus. He has made the way. You can remain and stay in your sins and face God one day and believe that you might have words to say to him. But he'll have words to simply say to you, depart from me for I never knew you. Or you can take the path that he's laid out for you. That one bridge, Jesus. And as you trust in him, you can be promised eternal life and guaranteed salvation. It comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. What will you do? How will you respond?
Peter preached, he laid out an invitation, and he gave a call. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace.